Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode eight in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, The Man of Lawlessness, where we'll discuss 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? So this is one of the most thrilling uh, chapters in the Bible on a detail of eschatology. Now, eschatology literally means the study of end times or last days things. And that is a topic that's always been engaging to people that people find fascinating. But here in this chapter, interestingly, Paul zeroes in on one detail of it, the man of lawlessness called in other places the Antichrist, or in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea, uh, an individual who will be the consummation of human rebellion against Almighty God, who will exalt himself as God, and be worshiped, and Paul goes into that. Also fascinating is just what we learn about eschatology in general from this chapter, that while other chapters and other texts give us a sense of of constant readiness for the imminent return of Christ, this chapter tells us to kind of hold our horses a little bit. That can't happen, The, the end can't happen until certain things occur. And so we're going to talk today about a lot of aspects of eschatology, but Jesus uses the analogy of the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see certain things, then you know it's going to happen. Mm. So there's certain things we will be looking at. So what we're going to find in eschatology, and a good understanding of eschatology, is a, is a very um, uh, fascinating combination of looking at Scripture and looking at current events. You have to look at both and combine them. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, then flee, if you're living in Judea, flee. That that combination of looking at current events and then let the reader understand, looking at scripture, Jesus talks about Daniel, let the reader understand, you combine them. A third aspect of this is that faithful, careful study of eschatology prepares us for the future so that we're not easily deceived. We're not going to be deceived uh, by what happens. And whether it happens in our lifetime or not, we need to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren and get them ready for the coming events. We have a lot to talk about today. And before we do that, I want to read our passages as our pattern so that we can know where we're headed and have these verses in our mind. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill 
with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought ourselves to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In verses 1 through 3, Paul is addressing a false teaching that was hurting the health of the Thessalonian church. What does it mean to be shaken or alarmed, and why would the idea that the coming of our Lord has already come mm -hmm. be so distressing to the church? Yeah, so this section, he introduces it in verse 1, talking about what he's talking about, which is the second coming of Christ. And it's the same thing that he addressed in the first epistle. In First uh, Thessalonians 4, he talks about the rapture. And so um, here he's circling back. So this Thessalonian church really was fascinated and concerned about eschatology, about end-time things. And so we, we know that uh, the Lord Jesus is going to come back. Second coming of Christ has been clearly predicted. Jesus said he would do it. The angels who were there with the uh, 11 as they were on the Mount of Olives as Jesus ascended up into heaven, came and were and gave this message, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So clear prediction of the second coming of Christ. And so Paul's talking about that concerning the coming, the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. He uh, talked about that. That's the rapture, uh, the gathering together of the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, as it says in Mark 13. Mm. Uh, Jesus will send out his angels and they will gather all of his chosen people from the surface of the earth. And the dead in Christ will rise at that time. And this is all 1 Thessalonians 4. We talked about that in an earlier podcast. Uh, we'll all be gathered together with him. All right, now, circling back on that, concerning that, I want, I want to to kind of cut off something. I've heard that you have become easily unsettled and, and alarmed by a report that came to us, supposedly, and it didn't. But the report was that the day of the Lord has already come. That ship has sailed. You missed mm. it. And so, given the significance of that, that the Lord's going to come back and take his people to be with him, you missed it. It's not even left behind at that point, like the secret rapture and you left behind. You're not saved. You're not mm -hmm. going to heaven. You're, you're condemned. You're part of a, a condemned race of people left behind by Jesus. Well, that didn't happen. And so Paul's addressing that. The day of the Lord has not come yet. You didn't miss it. Mm -hmm. And he says, honestly, that day can't come until we see some things. And he's going to talk about those things we need to see. Now, how are the false teachers seeking to use Paul's authority to promote this false doctrine? Yeah, so we see some indications, and we can't actually literally see it in uh, 
the <clears throat> sorry the epistles that Paul wrote. At one point, he said, uh, "See what large letters I use as I write this with my own hand. This is the mark I write. I always write in all of my letters. So this is my signature. This is like my like my signet ring signature." Hmm. Um, it kind of reminds me of Twitter accounts that have the blue check on them <laughs> because early in Twitter, I guess, some people were jumping on other people's accounts and saying things that brought humiliation to those famous people so that it became necessary to protect those well-known accounts, those famous uh, uh, Twitter accounts from, from forgery, basically, from false statements. So Paul apparently had the same problem, that mm. there are people coming along speaking in his name saying things he never said. So this was a prophecy or report or a letter supposedly of coming from us. No, no, no. Uh, and then he circles back. So there was always the danger of false teaching and teaching done in Paul's name, and he has to refute that. What does Paul say must happen before the day of the Lord? And how do we mm -hmm. reconcile the necessary sequence presented by Paul with that command you mentioned earlier of Jesus to be constantly ready for his return. Right. Well, on the second one, how do we say that day can't come until you see X? And X is very clear, a very clear indicator. And as I mentioned earlier, a few minutes ago, Jesus said, you know, they came to him in, in Mark 13. And they said, tell us when will all these things happen and what will be the sign that all of them are, are about to be fulfilled? So Jesus does answer that. He says he gives them a bunch of things to look for. And then he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. So there's certain things you're supposed to look for, and until you see them, you know the end can't come. That's definitely the press of this, ch of this chapter. Mm. He's saying it can't happen until you see that. So if you haven't seen the man of lawlessness, as he's about to describe, if you haven't seen all that, the end can't come yet. And yet we're told in many places in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, you need to be ready at every, every moment. Mm. The owner of the house will come in an hour you do not expect him. And so you need to be ready at any moment. So honestly, I don't know exactly how to harmonize those things. One thing I do know, there is some, something uh, that we could call a personal eschatology. And the personal eschatology has to do with your own death. Mm. Your last day comes the day you die. And therefore, you need to be ready at any moment to meet the Lord. In death. So in any case, it works out to the same thing. Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready at any moment, at any time. Mm. But if you're saying, yeah, but you're kind of deferring, that's changing the subject. <laughs> We're talking about being ready for the second coming. The way that some have harmonized that is with uh, basically two second comings, a secret rapture, a secret first coming that only the, only the, uh, the born again people will participate in. And then the rest of the earth get it a later, a later time after the seven-day tribulation. And I think there's some merit to that, but there's some problems with it too. And uh, I'm not going to go into all the problems with the secret rapture and the two second comings. I think just two second comings is problematic. So honestly, I would say let's just keep this whole thing a mystery and just be obedient to the simple reading of the text. Be ready at any time for your Lord to come, wh whether in your death or just that he comes, and then realize he can't come until these things have taken place. 
In that way, you're being obedient to the scripture. Mm-hmm. And if you can't harmonize those, fine, don't harmonize them. Just be ready and just know it can't happen until the day uh, the rebellion happens and the man of lawlessness appears. Hold those intention. I'll tell you this, whenever Jesus chooses to come back, he'll come back without consulting with your eschatology to see if it's okay for him to come. So just be ready at any time. So the two things that it seems it says here must come first are rebellion, right. the man of lawlessness, this okay. son of destruction as he's described in verse three. Mm -hmm. What four things does Paul say in verses three and four about this man who is coming first? All right. So yeah, let's talk about those. First, I do want to say a word about the rebellion. Um, The rebellion seems to be uh, a a general kind of um, wickedness Mm -hmm. that will greatly increase toward the end, similar to the days before the flood. When it says in, in, in Genesis six, the thoughts of men's heart were only evil all the time. And I think I think what's going on, it, this is complex, these things are complex, but you, you have to take in all of scripture and seek to weave it together and harmonize it. And the weaving a- effort is what's known as theology. You're, you're doing the work of systematic theology. You're weaving together individual texts into a cohesive tapestry of truth. Well, that's hard to do with future events. I, I look on it like a jigsaw puzzle where you can pick up a specific piece and you can see what's on that piece, but then you put it down on the table and you pick up another separate piece and look at it and then put it down on the table. So you got, imagine, let's not make it overwhelming, a hundred piece jigsaw puzzle. And, And you can fit three or four of the pieces together, no doubt about it, but you don't know where those three or four that are now one big kind of fit together piece goes together with three or four others that you fit mm. to. The whole thing is hard to harmonize. Very, very challenging. Yeah. So here, the rebellion seems to be a response to perhaps some ecological disasters described in the seven uh, trumpets of Revelation 8 and 9, in which green grass is burned up, trees are burned up, a third of the ocean turns to blood, fresh water is assaulted, ecological disaster, massive. Causing, I believe, a massive destabilization of of the world's populations. Think just this one simple thing. If one third of the Earth's population can't get fresh water, but they haven't died yet, Mm. what are they going to do? They're going to go wherever they can to find fresh water. What about borders and boundaries and, you know, immigration processes? Gone. Yeah, not going to mean much on that. They will mean literally nothing. People Mm. will be willing to risk their lives to find wherever the water is. At that point, the utter chaos, the death that's mm-hmm. described in Revelation 8 and 9 create the, the circumstance, I think, for the man uh, of lawlessness, for the Antichrist to come. And uh, the, the problem with it is that there's a religious aspect, and so the rebellion probably has to do with utter mayhem, chaos, anarchy, murder, whatever it takes to keep yourself and your family alive, and then a religious aspect where they start to worship a man as God, that's the rebellion that's going to occur. It's a worldwide great escalation of wickedness, rebellion. And then uh, along comes what Paul calls the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. Hmm. He's the, the kind of incarnation of human evil. He is the perfect rebel, the, the human that believes he's God. Um, the ultimate kind of, of distilled essence of 
human wickedness and rebellion against God that began with Adam and Eve at the Garden of Eden when they wanted to become like God. Um, this is a cohesive story from beginning to end, the unfolding of evil, mm. so that we would see it culminates in this one individual who then represents all of the lawless people, the godless people on planet Earth. They'd all like to be him, but they're willing to worship him. So this man of lawlessness is going to appear. Now, uh, we have a lot to say about this, but um, he says these things. He's going to be revealed, all right? He is doomed to destruction, uh, in my translation. Or you have the son of, what does mm -hmm. it say? Son of destruction. Son of destruction, meaning he's, everything destruction is, that's what this man is. Mm -hmm. um, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything, exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Mm -hmm. Now, this... I think generally is seen to be, this man of lawlessness seen to be also the Antichrist. Only the Apostle John uses the term Antichrist. Mm -hmm. The word anti in Greek means instead of, not against, although he is against Christ, but the Greek means instead of or in the place, a substitute Christ. Mm. And so he takes the place of Christ to some degree to people. He comes along. Now, John says in 1 John 2, he says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming and even now many Antichrists have come. So the way I understand the many Antichrists that have come as I read you know, in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament, Antichrist is a combination of two aspects, governmental power and religious power. So he's a governmental and a religious leader. Now, some antichrists have been either the one, like mm. Hitler, or the other, like a cult leader, like uh, Joseph Smith that started Mormonism. Mm. He is an antichrist. So um, with the antichrist, you get a perfect combination of the two. Absolute governmental power so that everyone in the world bows down to him and obeys him. And then religious power, where it says in this text, he opposes every other religion hmm. and establishes only one religion, and that is worship me. So, and there's more details. We can talk about the temple and all that, but that's the summary of what it says about this guy. Yeah, I'd love to talk about the temple. Okay. How does this man of lawlessness setting himself up in God's temple connect with our age in which there is no temple, which animal sacrifices have been forever abolished? Yeah. There's just so much to talk about here, and the complexity is more more than we can cover today. But the language that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 2 is very similar to Daniel chapter 11. And Daniel 11, he goes back and forth about uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, which are Greek kingdoms which fought over Palestine in the intertestamental period after Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes, he dies at the height of his power. His kingdom is divided into four among his four generals. Two of them, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, battle back and forth and back and forth. The king of the North, king of the South, battle back and forth over Palestine. It's not a well-known section of, of biblical history, redemptive history. It's not, not even in the Bible, except in this um, prediction here. 
But these Greek kings fight each other, and then along comes one of them, um, who we know as Antiochus, the F Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus the Fourth, and he basically takes over Jerusalem and defiles or desecrates uh, the temple, mm -hmm. the Jewish temple, which had been rebuilt after the Jews came back after the exile and rebuilt. And he apparently, I think, sacrificed pigs and spattered pigs' blood everywhere in the Holy of Holies. So he's just utterly desecrated the temple of God. Mm -hmm. Well, Daniel predicts that, or the angel predicts it to Daniel in Daniel eleven thirty six. It says the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers, etc. Now, you listen to that. That's very similar to what Paul writes about the uh, man of lawlessness. I mm. think it's the same individual. So this Antichrist character comes along, and it says openly here in this um, text, 2 Thessalonians, he will oppose and will exalt himself for everything that is called God or his worship. So Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, all the religions obsolete by this man, mm. made obsolete. Everything that's left is just him. Now, later in the text, it'll say the reason he's able to pull this off is because he does signs and wonders. He does miracles. Yeah. And I believe, given if you harmonize, try to harmonize everything, the destabilization of the ecological disasters of the seven trumpets that come along will create a context whereby people are yearning for stability and protection from government, mm. and he will provide it. So along he comes and he will uh, set himself up, it says, in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now in Daniel's time, that's God's temple. It's literally the Jewish temple. Mm. However, Jesus predicted plainly when his disciples were so amazed at Herod's temple, look, master, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Jesus said, do you see all these stones, these mm -hmm. buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The temple will be destroyed. So they come in Matthew 24, Mark 13, to ask about that. The temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus predicts clearly the destruction of the temple, which happened under the Romans in AD 70. So how then can a future antichrist, who has not come yet, set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that's a very important question. And it goes to the 70 weeks of Daniel, Daniel 9, the abomination of, of desolation, all these things. I believe the best way to harmonize all of that is to say that the, that the temple will be rebuilt. Uh, I think it will be rebuilt to the pleasure and the applause and happiness of unbelieving Jews who do not believe that Jesus is their Christ, their Messiah. Now you may say, well, how can there be a temple in which there's animal sacrifice if, according to the book of Hebrews, the animal sacrificial system is obsolete? Well, it's obsolete as pleasing to God, mm. but it doesn't mean it'll never happen again. As a matter of fact, we know it did happen again because the Jews, when Jesus died, the moment he died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Did animal sacrifice end that day? Mm. No. So what did they do to the torn curtain? Replaced it or repaired it? One or the other. Mm. Why? Because they didn't believe anything happened when Jesus died. He was a deceiver. Mm. 
They didn't think anything was over. We know as Christians that spelled the end of animal sacrifice. Yeah. It's obsolete and gone. But the unbelieving Jewish nation didn't think that way. And so they continued churning out the animal sacrifice so much that Stephen came and said, God, it, Jesus is going to shut this down. Mm. And they killed him for it. That shows you the animal sacrificial system was continuing after Jesus. Yeah. So the unbelieving Jewish nation had no problem with animal sacrifice. Yeah. They now pine for or yearn for the temple to be rebuilt. It could very well be the Antichrist will orchestrate the rebuilding of the Jewish temple and the reestablishment of animal sacrifice. Mm. And then along comes the abomination of desolation in which he shuts that animal sacrificial system down. And what does the text say he will do? sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, the way I read it, the way I understand the theology of it, we can put air quotes around it. Hmm. He sets himself up in, I'm doing air quotes, God's temple. It really isn't God's temple. Hmm. It's, it is itself an abomination of, of desolation. Hmm. And that's an interesting phrase, abomination of desolation. I'll talk about that in a second, but it's, he sets himself up in God's so-called temple, proclaiming himself to be, I'm gonna use air quotes again, God, mm. so-called God, but he isn't. It's a deception and the temple itself is a lie. Mm. But it is blasphemy because he is going right after the God of the Jews, right in his face mm. saying, kill me if you can, yeah. kind of thing. So there's arrogance here. Now, one last thing about abomination of desolation. Mm -hmm. Desolation means emptiness, okay? Jesus is leaving the temple after the seven woes in Matthew 23. And, and at the end of that, he sums up his seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you, sevenfold woe on the Jewish leaders and really on the nation. And he had said about demons, when an evil spirit goes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then it goes back it uh, says, I'll go back to the house I left. And when it goes about, back, it finds a house unoccupied, unoccupied, mm. desolate, empty, mm. unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. And so the final condition of that man, he wasn't talking about a house, but a man, is worse than the first. That's how, how it is with a demon-possessed man. But then Jesus says, that's how it will be with this generation. So I pushed out the demons, but after I leave, they're coming back. Mm. and it's gonna be much worse than it ever was before. Mm. So Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Mm. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then like happened right before the exile of Babylon, the glory left the temple in uh, Ezekiel 11. The glory represents the presence of God. When Jesus walked out of the temple, he, the glory of Israel, the glory of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, walks out of the temple, leaving the temple effectively desolate. Mm. All right, they kill him, they reject him. The temple is desolate. It's nothing now. It's nothing. After Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, it's just a bunch of stones with no spirit of God in it. Mm. It's obsolete. They don't know it. They're rebelling. They repaired or replaced the curtain in the temple. They're running the machine because they don't believe in Jesus. Mm. And they didn't believe his messengers like Stephen. Yeah. 
and so that the house is left desolate. So the abomination of desolation includes at least the Jewish efforts to reestablish animal sacrifice despite the fact that Jesus finished it, all right? Then the abomination of it is a Gentile king who comes in and desecrates it, like the Babylonians did with their axes, mentioned in one of the Psalms, axe-wielding, chopping up mm. all that beautiful woodwork in mm. Solomon's temple, desecrated the place. They went right into the Holy of Holies without any fear. Uh, Babylon did the same. They just destroyed, destroyed it. And then Antiochus Epiphanes did it. It's a, always a Gentile king. In comes the Romans and they do it. Well, here's this Gentile ruler who comes into the Jewish temple and sets himself up as God. Mm. Now, one last theme is way back at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the serpent said, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. This is the consummation of the rebellion. This is, wow. this is the perfection of it in, in its most darkest, evilest way, is a single man saying, I am God, worship me. Mm. So that's what's going to come. When that happens, the end is just about to come. Mm. Andy, there's so much for us to meditate on in these verses and uh, in this passage. One thing that I've found helpful is uh, you're walking through the book of Revelation. What would be some some helpful maybe uh, sections of the book of Revelation if people mm-hmm. wanted to listen to more on this topic? Sure. What would be some passages to look for, sermons may, they may even find on Two Journeys? Yeah, so yeah, I, I preach through all 22 chapters of Revelation and my hermeneutics, my approach to Revelation is a very difficult book, obviously, and there's lots of different approaches. But I tried to accept the uh, the seven seals, seven um, um, trumpets, seven bowls as having a literal effect on planet Earth. When I saw Revelation 8 and 9, the seven trumpet judgments, and I saw, I didn't know how they could be metaphorical. Mm. Uh, the, a third of the sea turning to blood. What's that a metaphor for? What does that represent? Mm. A, a third of the fresh water turning to blood. What does that represent? Yeah. Green grass burning up in trees, a third of the tree. What, is, what does that represent? Yeah. And so I want, once you sever the tie from just normal reading of words, you're into some spiritual realm that the allegorizers back in the day did, and you never know what the rules are. It's just complete mayhem exegetical mayhem. <laughs> so I decided, let's not do that. Let's stick as close to the text as we can. So I would commend really the whole sermon series, but in Revelation 8 and 9, you see the ecological disaster. Then Revelation 13 describes the man, the beast from the sea, the beast from the sea. Now the sea represents the turbulence of the nations from Daniel 7, beasts coming up out of the sea in the vision of Daniel. And up uh, out, of, out of the uh, sea comes this one kind of consolidating world ruler, the beast. There's also the beast from the land who's called the false prophet who testifies to the power of the beast. He does signs and wonders. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Or will we? Maybe we'll just do it next time. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we were getting through the whole chapter. We're not, but I kind of knew we weren't. Um, at any rate, I would commend that uh, Revelation 13, Revelation 8 and 9 for the seven trumpets, Revelation 13 for uh, the beast from the sea. That's so good. There's more than we can talk about in the time we have today, but those would be some great things to check out okay. for more on this same topic. It's very helpful. What insights does verse 5 give into Paul's teaching ministry, specifically yeah. how detailed it was, and how does this help pastors or teachers today as we think about uh, teaching and instructing? Well, Paul says uh, in, in my translation, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. So what it teaches me, we're talking about 
the Antichrist. We're talking about the man of sin who's going to come up and set himself in God, God's temple. All right. Well, <laughs> that is a detail hmm. of a detail of systematic theology. It is, a, it is a subsection of a subsection of a subsection. Okay. Eschatology, kind of the main subsection. Uh, circumstances surrounding the Antichrist and all of that. What 2 Thessalonians 2.5 tells me is that Paul was comprehensive in his teaching ministry mm. to the churches he planted. Yeah. He didn't hold anything back, and he told them again and again. So the point is, as he says in Acts 20, don't you know that when I was with you, I did not shrink back from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God or anything that would be helpful for you, but taught you publicly and from house to house. It was a river of teaching. So therefore, I think it does put a, a kind of a check on our understanding of Paul when he said, when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, that's not literally true at all. Right. What he means by that is the top priority, 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. So he means above anything else, there was nothing but Christ and him crucified. But I still taught you a lot of details. <laughs> there were lots of things I taught. So what that tells me as a preacher is just do solid work in the text, chapter after chapter, and deal with all the details. Don't skip them. Build in your church a love of theology as it flows up off the text. That's what I get out of verse 5. Well, this is a rich passage, and I think it would be good for us to take the time to do just that, to not skip over any of the details. So this has been a great conversation. I think it'd be good for us to pick up the rest of yeah. uh, episode 8 next time and complete our discussion of this passage as we look at Second Thessalonians together. Uh, particularly this second chapter here. So we want to thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast. I invite you to join us next time as we pick up our discussion of this chapter in this great book. Uh, thanks for listening, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.